got together for coffee and discovered that they all had the same problem. They had bats in their church. The first pastor said, you know, I got so mad, I took a shotgun, walked in the sanctuary, and I shot. All I ended up with was, was, was holes all in the ceiling. They're still there. The second pastor said, well, I trapped them. I drove them 50 miles away and let them go, and they beat me back to the church. They're still there. And the third pastor said, well, I haven't had any more problems with them. And they said, what did you do? And he said, well, I baptized them and made them members. Haven't seen them since. <laughs> you know, some jokes just have to be told. <laughs> I, tell a, I tell a joke, per se, once a year, and then I repent. So <clears throat> I'm actually going to be talking about church membership today. And uh, it's a topic that I know, I know you're just sitting there and your heart's going pitter-patter. Uh, because of that verse that says, thou shalt become a member of a local church. You know where that is? I don't either. It's in the book of Second Assumptions, I think. There's no chapter and verse that comes even close uh, to that kind of a statement in Scripture. But I think, I think you should become a member of a local church. And... Uh, it doesn't matter that much to me or to us whether that is here or elsewhere, wherever you believe the Lord wants you to be, but that you plug in and become committed to that church. And, you know, why do I believe that if I can't put chapter and verse to it? Well, I'm going to try to answer that question. We're in our series that we call Church 101, and we're studying the big picture of the church from, from Scripture and also, we're including in that how we got to this place as Signal Mountain Bible Church. And the elders have asked me to reminisce, as you know, and I've been doing that. And I also have been doing some teaching that has been a little bit more formal, uh, and that will be a part of our study this morning uh, as well. Uh, because some of the practices that we have are explicitly biblical. Baptism, Lord's Supper, discipleship, elder leadership, uh, church discipline, and so forth. Some practices that we have, uh, are, we, we regard <coughs> more as a matter of wisdom. That is, how we choose to do certain things. Uh, the bylaws change, for example, that Mark just mentioned is, this, we believe that this is a way uh, where things would function better. We have offering boxes instead of taking up an offering. Offering boxes in the back of the room. Uh, that, that's, there's no, we don't think that that's biblically mandated we don't have a biblical reason behind it. We, we believe that it functions best for us that way. But there are some things, like church membership, that are sort of in between and require a little bit more explanation. We do have church membership uh, here. We've never had a church membership drive. Uh, but w one of the things that I've done is uh, I have gone through some uh, old documents as we've been engaged in this series. And... Um, what I have in my hands is a typewritten uh, set of sheets that were from our very first organizational meeting. I referred to these a few weeks ago, but I, what, even then, a few weeks ago, I hadn't looked at what was behind it. What was behind it was the very first pastor's report uh, I ever did uh, for the church when the church was just a few months old. Uh, so here that is. Uh, it will be framed in gold. If anybody is interested in it, 
Uh, and, and I mentioned a number of things in there, like I, I wanted the church to know what my beliefs were, because we were just starting out about baptism, about the Lord's Supper, about some of those things that were essential, about who I would and who I would not marry. So it's, it's interesting to, uh, to uh, you really need to know those things up front uh, when you're, when you're uh, moving forward together. Uh, and in the midst of that, there was a statement on membership that this was printed off for the whole church, and this was back in 1986. So here's what, uh, here's what, we, uh, what this document said. Some reject the concept. So, well, hold on here. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> huh? Think it's coming? It's not? That's not it? Okay, let's just lose it, okay? Let's just lose it, okay. Um, <clears throat> okay, I have no idea where I was. Here we go. Here's, here's what I wrote years ago. Uh, some reject the concept of a role of church members as being anti-biblical. I don't think we can say it's anti-biblical. For the most that we can say would be that it is non-biblical, that it's, it's not mentioned in Scripture. The implication would be, why should we then have church membership? However, by the same token, the use of automobiles, even a Sunday school program, would be considered non-biblical. This may well fall under the topic of methodology discussed earlier. We adopt the best methodology to help accomplish the goals in our culture. Within our culture, church membership is understood and expected. Furthermore, church membership may indeed be biblical. Membership as Jewish synagogue membership before it seems to be taken for granted in the New Testament. The election of officers may assume a role of individuals who assent to a body of truth and are committed to one another in worship and fellowship. Numbers of people becoming Christians were certainly counted within the earliest days of the church, Acts 1, 2, and 4. Special roles seem to have been kept for particular purposes, 1 Timothy 5, that's where the the um, uh, widows were to be put on a certain role if they fit certain criteria for uh, making sure that they were cared for well. Church discipline also seems to assume exclusion from church membership as one of the disciplinary options. Therefore, I suggest... So this is back 34 years ago. Therefore, I suggest that there be a role of church members who assent to a statement of faith who can give a clear Christian testimony, and these may pass through any number of mechanisms yet to be determined. Congregational vote, interview with church leaders, etc. We hadn't decided what we were going to do at that time. So everything was kind of up uh, for grabs. Now, so here, here's the deal. We do have membership. And uh, we've changed how we do that over the years. Here's what we do. We meet, and then depending upon the size of the group, it's usually a Friday night, if it's a larger group, and a Saturday morning. It takes a, a while to work through some of the materials. If it's a smaller group, we may just do it on Saturday morning until uh, lunchtime. And uh, we, we cover the things that are in a notebook. This is new members class. This is the notebook uh, that we go through. It includes information on the gospel, our statement of faith, because we found over the years that not everyone actually can has has an understanding of the gospel. We've had people saved in the new members class. 
So what is, what is the gospel? What is our statement of faith? The importance of the body, the, what we believe about missions and how we engage in missions, how we're led, that we're elder-led church, not a CEO, pastor model, uh, how this church came to be, how, uh, what we believe about topics like women in ministry, church discipline, uh, how, how we handle finances, what you can expect from us, what we would expect from church members, all of those things are a part of that. Uh, and, and also, a, we go through a brief description of church history to see how we fit, where we fit within that great tapestry of church history. Every question is on the table in the new members class. What we're doing is we're just wanting to make sure that, no, that there are no surprises for you, for those who are joining with the church that catch you off guard. Uh, you know, so we, we used to cover this in a Sunday school class that met over five weeks. I'm sorry, over six weeks. But attendance was so sporadic as, as it sometimes is when people are out of town in Sunday school. So it just felt weird to say you can join if you attend four out of six classes. That just, that just, so we went to this block model. So on, on, on Friday night and Saturday morning, we meet with prospective members. And then the elders come in at noon and join us for lunch and fellowship and try to get to know everybody. After which, those who wish to join the church meet with a team of three uh, elders. And uh, uh, we, we break off into teams, and, and they share their testimony and uh, uh, ask further questions uh, that, uh, that they may have. And when we started out doing this, we had no materials. Uh, we had no class. We had, we had nothing. We just had people who wanted to join the church at the very first uh, met with uh, a few of our leaders. We didn't even have elders yet. We were establishing things, and we, you, you kind of have to do those things as you get started, which is exactly what we see in the book of Acts. So we, we have, uh, it's, it's been a wonderful process, but it's been a learning process. And then Sunday, at the end of that service, those who are joining come forward and profess their faith in Jesus, indicate that they are in agreement with the statement of faith of the church, and then commit uh, publicly to uh, the church with their time, their talent, and their treasure, after which the congregation affirms that uh, together. So uh, that's how we are going to close today's service. Now, I have never preached on this topic before, ever. Haven't needed to. Because actually, the more, more important than membership in the body is commitment to the body. But do I believe membership is biblical? Actually, yes, I do. And, and the arguments that I mentioned 34 years ago, I, I agree with me. <laughs> so about, you know, the numbers of membership and acts, the lists of needy people, church di discipline as an exclusion from uh, membership, all those make sense. But I also believe that not joining a church sets a bad example because why would you not commit yourself to a church in the way in which the church itself has defined that commitment but gary i can be just as committed whether or not i join well maybe so there can be exceptions but anybody who is married knows that love before the formal commitment of marriage is different from the love after that formal commitment of marriage. Christ identified with the church completely. And so I do, do I believe we should as well. Now, I want, I want to approach it 
a little bit differently because I want you to see how the early church saw itself in the mirror because there are lessons by comparing the church then and the church now. Um, there, there has been, uh, there's really been no place for us to tell you how the church grew and how the church developed. Sometimes people say, you know, the church is not an organization. It's an organism. Well, it's both. <laughs> because the organism got organized very quickly, and that was great. And that's what we found when we were, we were starting out. Um, so, but what I want to do is, is to talk about this, this reality that I believe is true, which is that membership the commitment that we describe by the term membership was embedded from the very beginning of the organization of the church. You were saved, you were baptized, and therefore a member in the way that we would define member today. Uh, the question, are you a member, would never have occurred. To any, it would never have been asked. It would have been nonsensical. I'm a Christian, of course I'm a member. So we're going to look at the church then. But, there's also the reality of the church now because there are 20 churches on Signal Mountain that I know of. Um, I took a look on the list and I thought, you know, I wonder if our sister church, Mountain Fellowship, is on there. And it wasn't. And then I thought, I wonder if Signal Mountain Bible Church is on there. And it wasn't. Yeah. 22 churches on Signal Mountain. <laughs> and about 400 churches in Hamilton County uh, that were on the list. So for us, the idea of someone visiting a church to decide whether or not to commit to this church as opposed to that church is an option that they didn't have then. And we do today and you can't turn back that clock so here's the point that I want to make for most of the centuries and across the, the world across the globe including most of the non-western world today the option of simply attending a church without committing to it was just inconceivable so let's let's talk about how the spirit formed the early church uh, if you will uh, look in your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 1 we're going to look at several passages in the book of Acts. As biblical detectives, we're going to examine sort of the timeline through the book of Acts and the organization of the organism. I want to walk you through the church calendar year by year. And the crazy thing is, for me, we're looking at the same time span, about 34 years, that covers the existence of Signal Mountain Bible Church, about the same time span. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we read Jesus' statement, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. And then Jesus ascended into heaven. And we've said many times that you, in Acts 1 through 7, you see the unfolding of the ministry of the gospel in Jerusalem. In Acts 8 through 12, you see the unfolding of the gospel in Judea and Samaria. 
And then in Acts 13, you have the beginning of the first missionary journey and the unfolding of the gospel to the uttermost part of the earth. That's the geographical outline of that book. That's what it looks like. And in 33 AD, Sunday, May 24th, we can pinpoint Pentecost, that's when the Spirit came and the birth of the church took place in Acts chapter 2. So Jesus ascended in chapter 1 and the Spirit descended. Jesus gave us a mandate, you shall be my witnesses after you are filled with the Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes upon you. That's it. After the Spirit comes upon you, you shall be my witnesses. And from this point on, from Acts chapter 2 on, every time in the book of Acts when people are said to have been filled with the Spirit, you know what they're doing? Witness. So if somebody says, am I filled with the Spirit? I think the better question that's recognizable is, am I witnessing? That's the gauge. Now, the church grew over the next three years, Acts uh, uh, through, through uh, chapter 34, and I'm sorry, through uh, uh, AD 34 and so forth. And as the church was growing, the apostles administrated everything. They were, uh, they, they were teaching, they were caring for the physical and spiritual needs of the church. At the last, in the last of Acts chapter 2, there's a paragraph, verses uh, 42 through 47. I'm not going to read it all, but you can look down that list and see a snapshot of the life of the early church. They were giving themselves to the apostles' teaching, to prayer, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, uh, of sharing possessions with one another as need would arise, continuing in, in worship, having favor with the people, increasing in number. All of that's a snapshot of the things that were going on in the next several years of the early church. Until you get to chapter and those things are unfolding over the next chapters until you get to Acts chapter 6. So take a look with me at Acts chapter 6, beginning with verse 1, because here a big problem arises. The early church was not perfect. It had all kinds of problems in it. And you can just, just list those thinking through the epistles, all the things that, that Paul had to deal with, that Peter had to deal with, that John had to talk about. All those things are a part of life as a growing community, but sometimes a hurting and sometimes an angry and, and, and rebellious community. All those things were addressed. The early church was not pristine. It was, as, as we've talked about before, the, the term that was used, a messy grace. That's, what, that's who we are. We are a messy grace. And here we see uh, what could have been a real problem. But I think that this one was just addressed beautifully. In Acts chapter 6, verse 1, Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews, these are the Aramaic uh, and Greek-speaking Jews, against the native Hebrews, those are the Hebrew-speaking Jews, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of the food. And most likely it was because uh, that the... the uh, the Hebrews who lived right there in Jerusalem, their widows were close in, and the others were farther out. There were some number of reasons for why this, this could well have happened easily. So the, these, these Hellenistic Jews are, are raising this complaint. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. And the word to serve 
is the word from which we get the noun form, deacon, to serve. And serving tables didn't mean like a waiter. Uh, it meant like dis distributing funds and resources. When Jesus overturned the money changers' tables in the temple, it's that kind of table that he has in mind here. So we're, we've been distributing things, we've been doing everything, but we've been neglecting the word of God, and this problem has come up. So they deal with the problem. He says, brethren, therefore select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, next time we see Stephen, he's preaching. He's witnessing. He's full of the spirit. Uh, Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. These they brought before the apostles. And after praying, they laid their hands on them. And the word of God kept on spreading, and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. I love how this was handled. I love it. No ignoring of the problem, no blame, no defensiveness. It's a growth problem, good kinds of problems to have. They came together, diagnosed the problem, addressed it according to principles. The apostles were going to be, they were doing too much. They had to identify their priorities. They did. They're going to be teaching the word. Others are going to be uh, handling this ministry. And, and, and the result of this is a very important ministry now has specific oversight. So the organization has grown. Uh, we call them, this is where we got the, the, term, the term deacons whose qualifications were formalized in 1 Timothy chapter 3, which was 28 years later. So I'm cluing you in on some chronology here. And from this point on, uh, I'm going to harvest a few details later on in the book of Acts. Turn to chapter 8. The apostles, and just some small details. This is how the organism became an organization as well. In Acts chapter 8, there were some Samaritan Christians, uh, Samaritans who were becoming Christians, and uh, that needed to be checked out because it was a danger to the future of the church. Samaritans going to be a part of the body of Christ? Look at Acts chapter 8, verse 14. How are they going to check this out? Now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down, and so forth. And I'm obviously not reading or investigating the whole context here. But the point is, and I want you to notice this, the apostles collectively were authoritative over Peter and John. They sent Peter and John. Peter, I thought you ran the church. No. He was the most prominent, most visible person. But the apostles collectively were over Peter and John. That's A.D. 35. Five years later, A.D. 40 and 41, the churches in Jerusalem, I'm sorry, Peter gives uh, an account to the Jerusalem church and he talks about how a, a, a Gentile Christian was, uh, was saved. So this is not just a Samaritan, this is a Gentile and his name is Cornelius. The, that, that same year, the church in Jerusalem sent Barnabas to validate the conversion of a large group of Gentile Christians. Look with me at Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11, verse 22. Now, let's just back up to uh, verse uh, 20. 
But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also. Now, before they were speaking to Jews alone, now they're speaking to Greeks also. So there's Jews, and then there were Samaritans in Acts 8, and now there are Gentiles preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. And news about them reached the ears of the church in Jerusalem. What does the church do? They sent Barnabas off to Antioch. And when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. I'm going to stop there at at that point. Uh, So the Jerusalem church, leaders in the Jerusalem church, sent Barnabas there. We're not told who those leaders were, but they were the ones who sent him. And he validated the truth of the salvation of this large group of Gentiles. The next year, next year, um, one year later, if you look at verse uh, 29, in proportion that they had, that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. This is a result of a famine. And we read in verse 30, this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders so now you have an offering that's sent to the elders of the church at jerusalem which means that elders had to be in place before that so you've got this organization we just look oh where did they come from they're they're there now the next the, the very next year peter when he's miraculously released from prison in acts chapter 12 you know what he tells the house church meeting in mary's house Go and tell James and the brethren. Because James is one of the figureheads now of the church in Jerusalem. James was not an apostle. He was one of the elders in Jerusalem. So you've got James and the elders being reported to by Peter. And by the way, here's another detail of something that's been added. The churches are meeting in houses They did that really from the beginning. In fact, if you want to track Priscilla and Aquila, we can identify them in five different places hosting a house church in each location. James, the brother of the Lord, James himself, whom we just mentioned, in his epistle of James, this is the next thing chronologically, he writes that the sick should call for the elders of the church for prayer elders not the apostles the elders plural of the church singular so you've got a plurality in a church call for the elders of the church for prayer and anointing with oil Um, turn with me to acts chapter 13 the antioch church was led by prophets and teachers and that includes saul and barnabas saul of tarsus And the Holy Spirit initiates the first missionary journey. Now there were at Antioch, at the church that was there, prophets and teachers. Barnabas, this is a Jew and a Levite. Simeon, called Niger. We don't know anything about that man. Lucius of Cyrene, that's a Greek name. Menaean, who was brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, 
So you've got this man brought up in royalty. And Saul, the former chief persecutor of the Jerusalem church, of the church, the Jerusalem terrorist, actually. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. Again, under the authority and leadership of the collective leadership of the church. What I'm I'm wanting you to see is that there's, there's just an organization that has happened as a result of this organism flourishing. So they engage in the first missionary journey uh, to Cyprus and Galatia. Galatia has the churches of Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. You'll read about those in Acts 13 and 14. And then on the return trip, we read that Paul appointed elders, plural, in every church. Elders, plural, in every church, singular. Again, a plurality of elders in each church. Now, When they got back to Jerusalem, the Jerusalem Council, what we call the Jerusalem Council, took place because the issue was, can Gentiles be saved apart from Judaism or do they have to become Jews first? And God made it very clear that the gospel was by grace through faith plus nothing. So the Jerusalem Council was the main decision where the gospel of God's grace was uh, confirmed. You know who led that council? James and the elders. The apostles were there, but they weren't leaders. And they spoke, but they were not the leaders of that council or a part of the final decision. But the gospel of grace was confirmed, and then immediately Paul left on the second missionary journey. And on the second missionary journey, he writes to the Thessalonians to esteem those who have charge over you and give you instructions. In other words, again, already elders are in place. On the return from the third missionary journey, turn with me to Acts chapter 20. In Acts chapter 20, Paul is on his way back from the third journey, at the end of the third journey. And it's now actually about six years later. And we read in verse 17, from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And then he exhorts them over the next verses and and pours out his heart to them. And, uh, and, And notice that he says in verse 28, Be on guard for yourselves, for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. And the word overseer sometimes is translated bishop, but these terms are used interchangeably. Elders is who they were. Overseers is what they did. But the terms refer to both. Just as they do in Titus chapter 1, they refer to both. God has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his blood. So, verse 31, be on the alert. And then he gives his, his, his loud farewells to them, and, and they are weeping. In verse 37, they began to weep aloud and embrace Paul and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they were accompanying him 
to the ship. Now, Paul arrived in Jerusalem, and at that point, he uh, submitted to what James and the elders asked, which was to go into the temple and make an offering for purification for the sake of the peace of the Jews as part of becoming all things to all men. But even so, notice the apostle is submitting to the elders. So the organization is, is in place, and Paul submits to that, but he is arrested there. And then the next five years are the story of how Paul moved from being arrested in Jerusalem to ending up in Rome in Acts chapter 28. And at this point, things get kind of interesting because at this point, Paul knows, okay, even if I'm set free, which he was, I'm not going to live a long time. So he wrote his book of church order. First Timothy was his book of church order. And here's what he, here's what he wrote to Timothy. Listen to this. Qualifications for elder. Qualifications for deacon. Qualifications, I believe, for deaconesses. Timothy, he mentions Timothy's spiritual gift was bestowed on him through prophetic utterance by the laying on of hands by the elders. When and where did that happen? Well, you remember Paul went through Lystra and appointed elders 13 years before. And the next year, Paul went through there and Timothy joined him on that missionary journey. So you can, there are a lot of dots here that you could connect. So uh, he also gave Timothy guidelines of dealing with older men, dealing with older women, dealing with young women, benevolence guidelines for widows, um, salary for teaching elders, uh, slander, uh, how to deal with slander for elders, discipline against elders, and guidance for wealthy believers. So if, I hope you're getting the picture here. As the time is passing, the organized church, the organism is getting more and more organized, and God is putting things into place. So this continues until uh, the Apostle Paul was executed uh, in the spring of 68 A.D. Now, to me, I love putting together details. I love seeing how things fit in place and locked down. I, just, I love that. I love studying those kinds of things. But here's what I want you to pick up from some of the narrative of what I've just been <laughs> rushing through. First of all, apostleship gave way to eldership in the early churches. After Acts 8, the apostles are prominent, they're around, but they're itinerant. The elders are permanent. The 12 apostles were eventually going to die. By the end of the New Testament period, even before that, the Apostle John, the, the Apostle Peter, do you know what he calls himself? He didn't call himself the Apostle as much as he calls himself your fellow elder, 1 Peter 5.1. The Apostle John at the end of the New Testament refers to himself not as the Apostle, he refers to himself as the elder. The elder to the chosen lady, 2 John 1. The elder to beloved Gaius, 3 John one. In the Rev book of Revelation, he calls himself your brother. He calls himself bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. So apostleship gave way to eldership. 
and that was the organization of the early church. Secondly, the eldership was plural. No man exercised single authority over the church. Uh, no man was the CEO. Every time a church is mentioned, multiple elders are mentioned, multiple elders are over that church every single time. And individuals, whether they were apostles or other elders, would submit to the collective body of leadership. Third, while the organization grew to match the organism, once those offices were created, Paul didn't say, okay, we have elders, we have deacons, and now we have this office and this office. And th-. No, those two offices remained in place and they were clarified, codified, and made firm as the pattern for the early church. He didn't continue to spin off new leadership models. It was clarified and stabilized, and that was the model that he left with us. Fourth, in the book of Acts and the epistles, the unbelievers did not attend church services. Isn't that interesting? The church gathered for worship, teaching, and encouragement, and then would scatter for witness. There's only one place that mentions the possibility of an unbeliever coming into a charismatic service. And Paul says, if he comes in and sees you doing that stuff, he'll think you're crazy. He says, that's given as a hypothetical. That's the only place that's ever mentioned as a possibility. Unbelievers didn't attend church services. Why would they? So here, okay, so here's where this comes all the way back around to membership. There were no unbelievers attending. And there was only one church that they could attend. So they were all members. They were. Membership was assumed because the alternative was just not an option if you're a believer. If you were to ask, should I join in terms of the commitment that's defined by that church? The answer was, of course. Why ever would you not? Now, I know things are different for us. We've got 400 churches in easy driving distance to pick and choose from. My purpose in addressing this is not to enlarge our membership role, okay? Uh, We have never had a membership drive. Um, We prune the list every year. (laughs) I don't, do you know how many members we have? I don't know. He didn't know either. Sorry, pastors, both of us. So here, you know, I've talked with other pastors. How many members do you have? I don't know. <laughs> we, I do know that we've always had more attendees than members. So I'm fine with that. But I am concerned about what's best for you as a body. In our culture, membership communicates something. In the first century church, it was just assumed. It was packed into the identity of who they were together as the body of Christ. And in membership, you're saying, this is my church family. This is where I'm going to invest myself, my time, my talent, my treasure. This is where I will raise my children. This is where I choose to trust the leadership of the elders, giving them a best-case interpretation when I don't know all the facts. But I would think it's hard to submit to the leadership of a group when you don't accept the way that they define what that commitment looks like. Does that make sense? Also, if you tell someone, I attend X and X, uh, uh, this church or that church, XYZ church, I attend this church, 
And they say, oh, are you a member there? And say, well, no. You may not intend to communicate how they will interpret that statement, but it could be understood as declaring a lack of commitment. Sweetheart, I've decided that you're the one for me and I'm not going to date anybody else ever. You are it for me. We're going to date each other only forever. Maybe 20, 30 years. Maybe 40 years we'll move, take things to the next level. If avoiding membership is a way of avoiding commitment, obviously that's wrong. Because the danger in not committing to membership is the probability of easy disengagement. So, whether here or elsewhere, we want you to identify with the church body, to commit to that body, in the way that that commitment is defined by that body. Do we require membership here for fellowship and mutual ministry? No, we don't require it. Absolutely not. But for leadership, to be a, de a deacon or an elder on the WMC, we do, we do require it. For voting, yeah, we do require it. Do we encourage membership? Yes, because of what that means as a statement of commitment. Have you ever thought of the utter uniqueness of the body of Christ to which we belong? I mean, if you just, okay, let's be rude. I want you to look at each other. Just look around the room. Yeah, be rude, stare. Do some staring. Okay, you have a, there's a group of people. Okay, stare at me now. Got a group of people that are absolutely different from you. I love the way that John White put it a, a generation ago, so this is going to sound a little old. Obviously, it is easy to form a comfortable clique of people of your own age and approximately the same outlook. Nor would I disparage the fellowship that you experience. It's God given. Enjoy it. Give Him thanks. But it may be less remarkable than you think. You could perhaps have experienced almost the same degree of fellowship with the same group without Christ at all. But Christ alone can bring opposites into harmony. And the local church is where he delights to do it. What is unique about enjoying the company of someone you like and who shares your background? Members of bridge clubs do that. The genius of Christianity is that it makes possible ongoing fellowship between people who could not otherwise tolerate, let alone enjoy one another. Christ gets refined socialites hobnobbing with migrant farm workers, middle-aged squares weeping with rebels and swingers, blacks, Indians, Jews, and wasps praying earnestly together, management and labor sharing each other's problems. In a world divided by class, commerce, race, education, politics, the generation gap, and a million clashing interests, Christ alone makes incompatibles mesh. Or as Paul put it, God has so composed the body that there's no division, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. Lord, I thank you for your grace, for your word, for your truth, and for the body of Christ for giving us to one another.
In Jesus' name I ask this. Amen. We have